Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the mini break. Your day podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, December 8th. On today's show, we continue State of the Union Week, where we take a step back and monitor some of the emerging trends we see across the professional tennis world. Of course, if you've been following along with our podcast this week, you've already listened to our State of the Union episodes talking all things American men's and women's tennis. You heard Ed McGrogan make his mini break podcast debut to talk through all things next-gen ATP. Thus, it feels most fitting that we end State of the Union week with a conversation on all things next-gen WTA. That means breaking down not the current prospects, age 21 and under, but the players I consider part of the original next-gen WTA crew. Now, unfortunately, they never had a next-gen finals for the women in the way they have for the men since 2017. But certainly, this is a group worth looking at, as again, this next-gen crew are players I consider born 1996 to 1999, who, of course, right now are either entering or are in the midst of their primes, players aged 24 to 27, who have already accomplished some serious things in the tennis world. The question, of course, is where do they go from here as we look over the next half decade? Again, these are the players who will be in the primes of their careers. These are the players who one would expect to achieve their best results to date, and thus a fascinating topic for us to discuss here on today's show. And joining me to end State of the Union week, seemingly fittingly, in my mind, is a man who joins us for States of the Unions throughout the course of every season we have in the pro tennis world, a man who has emerged as a co-host of this mini-break podcast, a man you last heard help us break down the 2023 WTA and ATP awards and a man who has been busy at work writing for all things tennis.com and tennis channel. It is our dear friend, editorial producer, David Kane, joining us here on Friday show. DK, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing okay, but to keep the fantasy going in my head, I'm going to be calling you Gil. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> I wore a sweater vest, sort of like a quarter zip. I feel like this is Gil attire. The brows are on fleek, so it's we're like we're like three quarters of the way there. But yeah, you know, keep and, it going. And I have just enough unshaven frisk to again appear darker on the outlines of the jaw. So I I keep this appearance for you, DK, more than you, anything you, else. You got to just maintain that look of wonder when I say something truly scathing about the WTA. Like it's it's you'll not see it coming. So it'll be it'll be fascinating. Well, that's what I hope for more than anything else throughout the course of this podcast is for you to say things that get listeners mad at us. Because, again, it's a rite of passage anytime you join us on the show. And certainly, again, this is a fun topic. I said this in regards to the men. I'll say it again for the women. 
These are the players we have been monitoring from the start here at Cracked Rackets. Those players that are my age that, again, I've seen progressed as I like to think this podcast has progressed as well. And thus, you know, again, you'll always remember your first generation of players covering this sport in the business. And for me, this is that group. But as I alluded to in the intro, this is a group that... 24 to 27, they're in the primes of their careers. And it's just worth noting as we get into this conversation and look back at the season overall for the next-gen WTA women, this is really the first post-Serena generation of players that will play out the primes of their career without Serena's presence. And obviously, if you look back in tennis history, that has mattered. Look throughout the 2010s, players like Halep, Kerber, Wozniacki, Pliskova, I can go through a list of others who had these remarkable accomplishments and yet either won fewer slams or no slams at all when those counts probably would have been higher had they played in different eras. Now, this generation, they saw the tail end of Serena Williams, but again, as they enter or play out their primes of their careers, they won't have that mountain to climb. Now, they may have Mount Ega, which is an entirely Well, not separate discussion. I think it's related to this generation as well. And certainly Coco Goff gets her first slam. You figure she's going to feature in the next half decade, obviously much longer than that as well. But still, this is a generation that to date, DK, has produced eight different slam champions already, eight of them. And it's just worth noting, one of them already retired, but shout out to Ash Barty, who won three different majors. You have someone in Naomi Osaka, who has not been a week-in, week-out presence really at any point of her career, but obviously we know what her peak is. She's racked up four major titles. You have someone in Sonia Kennan, who has won a major title, reached a second major final that same season, and has begun to work her way back from injury. And then you have the five who we saw play significant parts of the calendar, uh, significant roles in various parts of the calendar this season. You've got Sabalenka, the headliner who captured her first major this season. Rabakina winning Wimbledon last year. Von Druseva gets her first at Wimbledon. Krejcikova, who was exceptional in the first third of the season, obviously a former French Open champion. And then last but not least, can't be forgotten, belongs in this age group, DK. She's the oldest 1997-born player we have, or person, dare I say, in the world. It's Yelena Ostapenko, who still qualifies for these this list all these years later. Uh, excuse me, 26 years old, not 27 for Ostapenko. Don't want to charge her for the extra year. But here's the point. Eight slam winners is a big number for any generation. And you compare it to their corresponding men's generation that has had one in Daniil Medvedev, it feels that much more significant. Do you feel like we're going to have a steadiness over the next five years, or do you think we will have continued chaos from this generation that might, dare I say, be even one of its defining traits? Or like, have you seen, I guess, a hierarchy emerge? I mean, so first of all, it's fascinating to consider Ostapenko is in her mid-20s because I'm old enough to remember when she was just barely 20. I think <laughs> she liked, one, based on the way the Roland Garros calendar fell in 2017, she could have been a teenage champion, but turned 20 during the tournament. Um, I, I mean, it's an interesting conversation we're about to have because I do feel the age range does sort of perhaps, um, unfortunately, exclude Iga Shvantec, who I think is going to play a pretty big part uh, on this next generation's prospects in 
similar, if not perhaps the same way that Serena played a part on her own previous generation. The op- the difference being that Iga is the younger uh, foil, whereas Serena was often the older, more experienced uh, stateswoman. I had a whole bit ready where we were going to guess uh, Grand Slams, and I was going to accuse you of saying that Iga wasn't going to win anymore, and I was going to be <laughs> generously going to give her another 25 slams, but we can't make that joke. She's not officially a part of this conversation. I but would I also do just think- quickly add, and I apologize for cutting you off, Serena played that role early in her career for a prior generation, for the she Davenports, did. and for, you could even and say Capriati and Capriati and you know Enin was her age Sharapova but obviously she outdid them like that is the position Ika is in right now she is and I do think that in the last year or 18 months we are seeing a bit more coalescing towards the top of the game I mean it was a pretty steady roster from the 2022 to 2023 WTA finals which is something to be commended and does speak to a bit of a hardening at the top, even if there still feels like a bit of chaos below a certain ranking threshold, which may be yet higher than uh, some of us would prefer. But um, yeah, I do think that there's a lot of opportunities for this crew to achieve more. And I do think that they are still getting better. I think part of the problem with the previous generation was there might have been a bit of a leveling off and that I don't necessarily see from from this crew. I also think it's worth adding the caveat, and I'm curious what you think of my post-Serena framing, but you look at this generation right off the top, and it's worth framing as well as we go into the next half decade, the two headliners, the two winningest players from a slam perspective, they have been non-factors for much of the last 18 months. And of course, those two players are Ashley Barty and Naomi Osaka, the ones with seven slam titles between them, the two who, again, you expected three years ago to be defining this 2020s decade on the WTA Tour. And again, Naomi Osaka working her way back. It will be fascinating to see what that ceiling will be. That's something we can discuss at length later. But you wonder, A, what you'd, what you'd think of this generation, a loaded generation if you include those two and if they prolong their careers. But B, the opportunities you just talked about created by those two's absence. Like, it's just a fact that those two were a mountain that was very difficult for any of these players to overcome. And to watch Sabalenka's power in its best form take on that Barty backhand, Rabakina, same thing, boy, would that have been fascinating. To see how the aggression of Barty challenges a Sviantek on clay, because it felt like Ashley Barty wasn't going to lose at the French Open for a long time. How she would have done at Wimbledon, Osaka on the hard courts again, fascinating what ifs that we will all be it's certainly on this podcast considering for years to come but i guess the most impressive part of this generation is and this is where i promise i'm ending my monologue dk i don't feel their absence like i still feel like this is a pretty talented generation even without Barty and osaka at the best when they should be I mean, we would obviously want to see them going head to head against this generation to see the hypothesis play out. But statistically speaking, their combined slam total is not entirely dissimilar to what we experienced in the late 90s with Hingis and Davenport. Hingis winning her five slams between 97 and 99, Davenport winning her three slams between 98 and 2000. And it ended up serving as a bit of an interregnum between the Steffi Graf era and the Serena Williams era. So there is historical precedent for players, you know, collecting a, a good amount of slams, perhaps challenging for those elite um, Hall of Fame worthy records, and then 
either becoming eclipsed or falling off the map uh, in the case of Hingis, or just ultimately, you know, power creep for Davenport with Venus and Serena and even uh, the Belgians just sort of becoming more powerful, more consistent than even a Davenport, which she was able to do at her peak. I, I mean, obviously there's still plenty of hope for Osaka, but it it doesn't feel necessarily to your point that we are, that things would be radically different if they were on tour right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, I think that's a credit to this generation of players. Certainly, you look at a Sabalenka, Rabakina, their power, it just feels like, you know, again, maybe we saw it with Peak Serena, certainly, but it's generational degrees of power from those to the creativity of Vandrusova, just an outlier that you don't see very frequently. Even the peaks of Ostapenko, I've said it before, I'll say it again, will have a spot in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club for her because on the right days and the right weeks and the right matches, ask Iga Svantec in New York what it's like to face down the gauntlet of a free-swinging and inform Yelena Ostapenko. And with that context in mind, DK, Let's grade this 2023 season overall. Now, again, I I apologize. It's been a busy week of podcasts. I don't quite have the stats the way I did for the men on yesterday's show, but I still got some stats for you, DK. Don't you worry about that. Right now, 12 top 25 women amongst this next-gen WTA cohort. For what it's worth, that's actually fewer than their men counterparts, but still it's the steadiness, how frequently these players have been in this group. And again, it excludes players like Maria Sakari, who's a year older than this and ages out, Pagula Jabur, two years older than this, age out, Annette Conteve retired from this group as well, another player we felt presence in the top 20. But again, Sabalenka, Rabakina, Vondrusova, Muhova, Krechikova, Hadad Maya, Ostapenko, Samsonova, Bencic, Kasakina, Kudermatova, Vekic, all born 96 to 99, all top 25 players right now in the WTA rankings. Now, if you want to expand beyond that into the top 50, again, there are players like Kalinina, uh, Paulini, Bozhkova, Sinyakova, Saribes, Tormo. Maybe you want to include a healthy Nadia Podoroska, given what we've seen from her from a clay upside, that are all pretty consistent. Maybe. Yeah, top 50 players in this cohort. Again, the big thing this year is the headline results. Von Drusova wins a slam. Sabalenka wins a slam over Rabakina. Uh, you had Karolina Muhova making her first slam final. Then, obviously, Sabalenka, the other slam finalist in New York. Certainly, from a semifinalist, quarterfinalist perspective, you know, Donna Vekic, a forgotten Australian Open quarterfinal, but she was there. Ostapenko, a couple of good runs for her, obviously, on the hard court majors as well. French Open, uh, obviously, Iga Sviantek dominated, but Muhova, Sabalenka, Haddad Maya, all semifinalists finalists or better this group did pretty well at the headline events sunshine swing sabalenka rabakina very much dominating the headlines there now you know north america maybe got away from them in terms of the pre-us open events but even then they recovered with muhova and sabalenka ostapenko von Drusova, all quarter finalists or better along with sabalenka what's your grade as you look at this next gen cohort how are you feeling about them coming out of 2023 I mean, it's hard to give them an A necessarily because they were ultimately, you know, behind someone who was younger than them. And so I think in order to have gotten the top marks, they would need to have been dominating. Um, and on top of things uh, in terms of the WTA rankings, I mean, it is interesting to really see the turnover from the post-pandemic era that this top 25 has been completely almost flipped uh, with with players within that um 
age generation, I I guess a B plus. I, I mean, it's it's hard to separate the on court results from kind of everything else because statistically, I think everyone did good to great. Uh, my concerns, I think, are just looking at this cohort from a marketing stylistic perspective. You know, where is the next star from this group? And I think that's something that I'm grappling with. But at least on court, I, I think the numbers do back up a, a solid season and, and a good launch pad. I think it really this is a good baseline. We need to see more from them next year. That's a fascinating discussion and framework. I guess we'll use that for the rest of our discussion because who's the next superstar is the equivalent of asking, what are the tiers right now? Who are the players you think of this group are going to be competing for slam titles moving forward? How many in this group do you think will be consistent contenders? How many in this group do you think will be in that top 10 to 12 mix? We'll see them in 1,000 level events, semis and finals. We may even see them in a slam final, but you're not going to guarantee that they're going to win another major moving forward from here in their career. And, you know, again, they'll be in the tour finals hunt. You don't feel like they're a top eight lock every season. I want to get into tier three as well, that top 32 mix to again, look more broadly at this generation. But let's start at the big guns, DK. I have two tier one players, two players that coming out of 2023 in this generation, I feel very certain are going to win another slam title in their respective careers. And I think most obvious number one on this list is Arena Sabalenka, who unequivocally had the best career uh, year of her career in 2023. 55 and 14 overall, it's a career high in wins. It's a career high in win percentage. She goes and makes six different finals throughout the course of the year, three titles. What's most notable, of course, the scale of those titles and finals, Australia, Madrid, and Adelaide won fine, but the finals, Indian Wells, U.S. Open, Stuttgart. Obviously, she was like nine points away from dare I say, making all four slam finals and winning all four slam titles. A-plus year for Arena Sabalenka. The serving issues pretty much went away. Like the double fault percentage, 6.2. That's 4.2% less than what plagued her in 2022. She's number two in hold percentage, I believe, trailing just Garcia, but over the 80% threshold, that elite of the elite threshold overall on the season. Like... She has to be tier one. I don't know what the argument against would be at this point. I feel like she is, if you're looking for the next superstar like of this generation, she's at the top of the list. Post bar, even in this, even with Osaka coming back on the court, she has to be the number one prospect. Yeah, I mean, looking at the the breakdown between on and off court earnings, her lack of endorsement money despite the season that she had was a bit worrisome, you know, from a marketing perspective, I think probably being from a country that's currently involved in uh, an unprovoked attack on a sovereign nation, maybe, you know, um, suppressing the uh, number of sponsors who might be interested in taking on a client like that, who otherwise did have a superb season played technically pretty flawlessly tactically and mentally maybe there were some lapses uh in slam semifinals and and in the u.s open final but i i do think she is the clear front runner of this generation and and set herself a phenomenal uh baseline to which she can hopefully improve because as you said she was so close to winning all four slams which is crazy to think for a player that had up until this season, never even made a final and had lost a couple of really tough uh, Grand Slam opportunities. So the way that she was able to shake those off, continue to make her steady improvements, you want to see more of that in 2024. We can play the game for the first time this year with her. Good win, uh, excuse me, good loss, bad win, whatever, however you want to frame it. 
the only bad loss you'd point to, and again, there's only 14 of them on the season, Kennan in Rome. Was that a bad loss? I would say no, because she'd won Madrid the week prior. Not a lot of chain turnover in that time, and Kennan went on to a pretty decent season. So I do not consider that a bad loss. Do you? Yeah, she was exhausted um, after winning Madrid. The emotional hurdle of winning a big title on clay against Iga, it, that felt like a bit of a wash. And also a kind of rough indictment of the ver- still very new uh, two-week tournament format from Madrid to Rome that before that point, Sabalink had been pretty excited about. And then I think she was less excited once sort of the realities of Rome hit her. Yeah, you could say the three-set loss to Krejcikova in Dubai was tough, but then she beat her twice in the Sunshine Swing. So made up for immediately... Lost to Kudermatova in Berlin. Who cares? I mean, again, first grass court event. I'm not factoring that into anything. A loss to Muhova in Cincinnati. Like, no. Three sets in the semifinals. I don't think that's a bad loss either. And again, a bunch of her losses throughout the course of the year. Three sets. And you could say the slam losses were bad losses, given the context of she was leading each of them. But none of them to compromise players. Her losses this year at the slams. Goff in three. Jabur in three, Muhava in three, and she won Australia. Like, there's not a single indicting loss on that list. And it speaks to why, again, with all the power, what always impresses me most is how well Sabalenka moves, how technically refined her game is. Like, she seems pretty well suited as long as she stays this fit, this focused. Why can't she do this for five more years? I mean, to be clear, those three slam losses were bad. They were bad. The way that she lost them, the way that she was in a winning position in all three match points against Mukhova, up a set and a break on Jabir, up a set and doing well early in the second against Goff, who was not serving well those first couple of games, was not able to get a break. And then obviously Goff gets in the match, as we've discussed. And again, her year has been very difficult to break down because it has been on one hand amazing and on the other hand some really tough losses that are hard to reconcile typically one doesn't have such a great year and then also have a preponderance of heartbreaking losses maybe they have one of those but to have three is 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 surprising and shocking but so that's really the main hurdle for her going forward is she's proven now that she can pretty consistently get herself deep in pretty much every tournament that she plays now is she mentally prepared to having the mental stamina to play the tennis she needs to play to get over the final finish line and win those those semis and finals. Because again, to this point, those two slam semifinal wins were against, you know, Magda Lynette and a Madison Keys. Those are not necessarily, you know, compared to even a Jabor, the losses to Iga, you know, we want to start seeing her play her best against the best at the best tournaments. It also feels like much like Serena, we've learned from Sabalenka over the years, her power, her game style translates across surfaces. She has had success in every portion of the calendar now during her career in a way no one else in her generation has, not in Osaka, not, well, maybe a Barty, but not even in a way Naomi has. And so, again, that ability to dominate across surfaces is why you feel like the numbers could rack up. It's why she has to be an unequivocal tier one player if she's going to sustain this level because you saw flashes of it and then you saw it sustained throughout the course of the 2023 season. My only other tier one player, it's not Osaka. She'll, we'll get to her in tier two. It's not Kennan. It's not Ostapenko. I apologize, DK. It's Elena Rabakina. She's my second tier one player, the last I would have in tier one of this generation, where I just feel pretty darn certain that she will win another major in her career. And again, 
it was a career year for her, 47 and 17, best win percentage, best most wins she's ever had in her career, career high hold percentage, 79%. That's third best on the WTA Tour. The break percentage wasn't great, and she was certainly inconsistent through portions and just individual matches where it would pop up on the calendar. But again, I don't think she had that many indicting losses on her schedule this year. And certainly through the first three months, it was pretty clear who the three best players in the world were. It was her, it was Sabalenka, it was Fiontech, and there really wasn't much discussion beyond that. Again, I think Rabakina has proven she's made quarterfinals at the French Open. She's won a Wimbledon. She's made a slam final on a hard court. Her power translates across surfaces. She also moves a little bit better than someone you would expect with her height, with her power. It's also times where I feel like, again, it's what it, does she want to scale things back on the return of serve? Because she's a good returner foundationally. She's just so aggressive. And I would love to see what her actual percentage of returns put in the court, how it compares to other top 50 players, because I would imagine it would be in the bottom 10 with how aggressively she plays. I have no technique questions. I know how she can dominate with the serve. I think it's going to happen again. What say you about Rabakina coming out of 2023? Yeah, I would say that it's almost like a reverse Sabalenka situation where she won the slam first and now is learning yeah. to be consistent. And, you know, Sabalenka learned to be consistent and then won the slam. Um, and so we saw her like that. Win, win Wimbledon last year, deal with the, you know, the expectations and the perceived slights <laughs> that she received after winning the first slam and then starting the year so well. I mean, it was it was an interesting season where, again, we were talking about in March, there was a big four. And then until about June, July, there was a big three. And then by September, October was pretty solidly just a race between Iga and Arena, which is not a situation where I think Rabakina should have been in. I think she still should have been very much in contention throughout the season because much like Sabalenka, we saw that hers is a game that can translate across surfaces, you know, made the Australian Open final, won Indian Wells, won Rome, has won Wimbledon. This is, a you know, a transcendent talent in much the same way as Sabalenka with different, slightly different execution, but the same idea, <laughs> you know, to hit the, hit the player off the court, doesn't have the same weight of shot, but has a lot less complicated technique. So it's sort of pick your poison in that respect, um, which will last longer. Historically, so far, we've seen Sabalenka go a little bit farther. Um, but I think there's still plenty of room for uh, Rabakina to improve herself. And so I think I definitely want to see another year from her where she can string together top-tier tennis from start to finish. Has made second weeks at Roland Garros. You mentioned it has won a clay event in Rome, has won a clay event, uh, slow hardcore event in Indian Wells, has made the finals of the Australian Open. Her power translates across surfaces, every sort of condition. When Elena Rabakina brings her best tennis, you're just in trouble, regardless of who you are as an opponent. Again, even if it's a Sabalenka, even as if, if it's a Sviantec, we saw Rabakina have success against both at portions of the year this year. You're right. She hasn't put together a consistent nine-month stretch yet. She's had a good three months. We need to, you know, that six-month, nine-month stretch, that's when that second major typically comes and. I just think we are going to see that at some point from her because, again, Elena Rabakina is still just 24 years old, just entering, dare I say, the prime of her career. That's the end of tier number one for me, DK. Now we have a list of players, tier number two, which, again, I consider players who are going to be in that top eight, 
10, 12 mix. You're going to hear their names second weeks of slams. You're going to hear their names 1,000 level, 500 level events throughout the course of the season. But I just wouldn't put them in that guarantee to win another major category. And at the top of that list, I actually have Marketa Vondrusova, number one in my tier number two. She's the outlier. Like for everything everyone ascribes to Jabur, Vondrosova is the one who actually carves you like a turkey. Like she's the one who finds the short angles. She's the one who drops shot lobs you to death. No, J- Jabur has better power, like linear power. It takes the ball a little bit better early on the rise and a little bit more aggressive. But Vondrosova has a counter to everything you throw at her, and there's just a fluidity to her as an athlete. One of the best five movers I think we have in the women's game right now, right up there with Sviantec and Goff. The fact that the first major came on grass courts when I'm still convinced clay is the best surface for her, her variety, how it all works, that she was really consistent, U.S. Open and hard court results uh, throughout the course of the season. Obviously, it was a player I bet big on going into 2023, and I feel great about that. And we already gave her a report card grade when we talked about her after the WTA Tour Finals. But the serve is still a liability. Like she is not top 25 in hold percentage to end this season, despite all of her success throughout the calendar. And uh, Excuse me, she's 25, but she's 25th in hold percentage to end the year. And, you know, again, with the power players like Sabalenka, Rabakina possess, the fact that players like Goff, Sviantek can match her physicality and have a little bit more weaponry to work with. Vondrosova is going to be a top 15 player as long as she's healthy. That there's some health questions as well matters, but she's the top of tier two to me. Your thoughts on that argument, her coming out of the year where, again, she did get that major monkey off the back. Yeah, looking at the list that was so generously provided to me, I did have a I didn't clear... give you Gil, but I gave you an outline. You could pick you one. I know. Thank you, Gil, for that. I really appreciate it. But looking at the list, I did have a clear number three in mind, and it wasn't Von Drusova, and we'll talk about her in a little while. I am persuaded to your argument about Von Drusova, oh. mainly because, yeah, I know, <laughs> enjoy That's... it while it lasts, baby. Yeah, what? Um, because of the fact, because obviously I think you look at Von Drusova and Mukova, sort of two sides of the same coin, players who are very creative, both players from Czech, players who are incredibly injury prone and players who have made it deep, you know, at major tournaments. I think what ultimately has made Von Drusova intriguing and what may continue to make her intriguing is that when she is healthy, she is proven capable of running hot better than a Mukova and better than anybody else on this list. We're talking about, you know, the streak that took her into the 2019 Roland Garros final, the the streak that took her into the Olympic final. Now, you know, winning Wimbledon and continuing that that run of form through the rest of the season. I think when she, to your point, when she is healthy, you know, sometimes we say that when they're healthy, they're great. But I feel like for Von Drusseva, it's really true that when she is at her healthiest and most confident, she is exceedingly dangerous. And that is in spite of any obvious power weapons you know some you think of someone who can get streaky like uh Sabalink and Rabakin you don't think of Von Drusseva as the type of player who can run hot like that but she really can and I think it is it speaks to like a mental fitness that allows her to get like the brain is just firing she's able to anticipate she's able to improvise that much better when she is getting on a roll and so I think that is what makes her so interesting to watch that even if she doesn't have the clear weapons of the two women we spoke to spoke about previously she has the sharpest mind on this list and it is paid off because it is continuing to put her in opportunities to win big tournaments I mean this is not someone who I think anyone expected except for some of us uh, at the beginning of the year to to be in slam contention and yet 
you know, she got into that position and she made, she embarrassed Jabir. So I think that's going to make her someone to watch again, provided she stays healthy. Yeah, I mean, we didn't see her have a ton of success against top 10 players this year. Marketa Vandrosova, 5-9 and nine overall of those five wins, a top 10 number amongst top 50 players. She was also, I think, 10 and 12 against top 20, which again, a top eight number amongst top 50 players. She had an exceptional season, particularly given the context of the injury she has suffered over the past few years. But yeah, again, there's a place for that physicality, that fluidity to underline the skill set she has. As long as she's healthy, I think there's going to be a place for her at the top of the game. Now, again, because she can't control her own fate as well as some others, that's why I have her tier two, not tier one, but I feel pretty good about her heading into the 2024 season. Next name on tier number two. And again, I promise we're not going to be doing this for a million players, DK. I've adjusted the outline as we've gone here. I'm still very confident we will be an under an hour show. Our listeners already know whether that prediction is correct or wrong at the halfway mark. Next up is Barbara Krejcikova, who certainly showed some tier one upside earlier this season with how well she played in the first third of the year. And, you know, again, had she not run into Sabalenka so early in the sunshine swing, you feel like there might have been a semifinals, maybe even a finals to her name. She wins Dubai. She wins San Diego. A couple of other finals for her, Zhengzhou, as well as Birmingham. Obviously did not have a good year at the Slams. Second round exit Wimbledon. First round exit U.S. Open. You even look for her Roland Garros first round exit Australian Open. Third round loss to Pagula. For someone who was so consistently a top five player in 2021, obviously injuries wiped away 2022. But to see her win Ostrava at the end of last year, to see her have that first third of the year that she did, you just felt like, all right, Krejcikova is back. And then she just wasn't down the final two-thirds, or maybe you want to go a little bit below that and say like five-ninths of the season. 33-19 and 19 should not be a record for someone who was playing as well as she was to start the year. Again, there were some serious highs, like to beat Kenan, Collins, Hadadmaya, Kalinin on the way uh, to the San Diego title. Obviously, Dubai beating Sabalenka, the real headline, beating Kvitova, beating Pagula. There were some serious highs. And yet, I, I, like, I'm curious, where are you with her game heading into the next five years? Because she should be around. Like, she has the weapons. She can attack. Krejcikova was also not my number three. I'm, I'm enjoying this game. I'm curious how much farther we go down the list before we hit okay. my number three. Because where I feel like we don't still don't know enough about my number three, I feel like we almost know too much <laughs> about Barbara Krejcikova in the sense that this is starting to, you know, Whereas uh, Marketa Von Drusova emanates, you know, this sort of quiet confidence and chill, like Barbara Krejcikova clearly got very stressed out by the prospect of trying to compete with the top women in the world. And as much as she tried to project a inner belief that she could be very much, you know, top three, top two, and not just the number four compete, you know, challenging the three women in front of her, she... The game proved otherwise. She didn't beat Sabalenka at either of the two Sunshine Swing tournaments. And I think it really did just wreck her confidence. And you can't afford, at, you know, right now to lose five, six months of a season because you didn't beat Arena Sabalenka in Miami. I mean, realistically, kind of who cares? You know, like you had a clay court season to prepare for, girl. Like what happened? <laughs> you know, like it shouldn't have, that should not have been something 
that you would have expected of a Grand Slam champion. You know, like this is, I and mean, I think part of the problem for Krejcikova and from a singles perspective, things happened so out of order for her that they're, again, similar to a Rybakina, like she won the slam first and is now trying to develop consistency. And so I think that is going to be a problem for her going forward because I don't, we did this already where she, you know, bore up at the end of 2022, so all right, everything's fine. And then lost a lot of 2023, just seemingly through her own, you know, mental struggles. And yes, she's someone who can catch fire, who is perhaps more effective than Von Drusev in that sense, because she is able to possess more firepower and, ha- and can run hot and can get streaky. But I think, I wonder what mental work is being done to really prepare her for what she is capable of. I don't, And I don't think that's happened yet. Top 10 and hold percentage once again this season. Again, that ability to square up with the first serve, the plus one game, move forward, plan her terms. You just can't fake that. She's one of six players to be top 20 in both hold and break percentage amongst top 50 players. You mentioned the mental side. Again, her and Sinyakova, one of the most accomplished doubles duos we have of any generation. They've broken up. They're not going to be playing together in 2024. Interesting. A very interesting development. And you wonder how that impacts her moving forward. Maybe it is just a single-centric focus for her because she's accomplished everything there is to accomplish in the Especially right before the Olympics, which I don't think we've connected that one. Yeah. No, very, very surprising. Again, the game style is so there and the technique is so pure for Krejcikova. So I couldn't drop her out of that top 12 mix out of tier two. And I just think her upside, again, that ability to catch lightning in a bottle that we've seen her put together a top eight season in 2021. And it didn't feel like a fluke. Like it just felt really repeatable for her moving forward. She might also, by the way, be a late 95 birthday in December and just hasn't turned 28 yet. So it might be a cheating to include her here, but I did. And she's in tier number two. Let's go to the next name. I think you might've had this player. And by the way, Vondrosa and Krejcikova, both tier two, correct? Your tier one ends, it's just Sabalenka and Rabakina. You agree with me there? Yes. Yeah, because okay. Rabakina and Sabalenka are just so much better. <laughs> I think that's well, just, that's clear. Next up is the player. Next, year. next up is the player, I think, of every player we're going to discuss moving forward and in tier number two is the one most likely to maybe someday make a jump into tier number one. And that's why I think you, like me, are very high on Ludmilla Samsonova. And we've talked about this before, and he's making a case that I am correct. So I'm just going to let you go. Where are you with her out of 2023? Do you think there's still upward mobility in her game? So surprise, she was my number three, because I still feel like we don't have enough data points on Samsonova. And I think that she's still very, she feels like the youngest one in this group because she, and she might, that might be true, but certainly like of the list of players that we're looking at, she has the the smallest resume. But yet, I, I would say she has the most technical, tactical you know, potential. You know, we look at the way Sabalenka hits the ball, the way Rabakina hits the ball. I've, I've argued that I feel like Samsonova is smack in the middle, where someone with a, a lot of weight of shot, but it's not overly complicated. It's sort of like, for me, it feels like very ideal tennis, which is then surprising that we haven't seen that ideal tennis translate yet on the Grand Slam stage. Perhaps it's just not having that extra inch of power, you know, when you're taking on a Madison Keys at the US Open, that probably would have helped her um, to be a little bit more uh, throwing caution to the wind in that instance. But I do think that there's so much upside to the game. Everything is so clean and so smooth. There doesn't seem to be a ton of, you know, perhaps mental hangups, things that need to be overcome in that in that department. For her, it just feels like more reps, you know, staying healthy and having more opportunities for her, I think, is what's ultimately going to get her over the finish line. Because when she is good, she can be 
nigh unbeatable. And I do think hers is also a game that translates across surfaces. I've seen her play well in clay, grass, and hard courts. So this is, she is just so the future to me. And I, but I'm, and I'm so excited to see what 2024 looks like because I do feel like the pieces of the puzzle are just about getting together. Started her career 56 and 37 overall at in tour level hard court matches. She's 46 and 19 in tour level hard court matches since the start of the City Open last year. 20 and 11 in her career on grass courts. 22 and 26 on clay. Now, is that a big enough data point for you to lose all faith in her? I say no because her kicks her first forehand top spin combo on clay court should work. Like it really just should. And again, that she was able to have. Maybe, uh, well, that it's a willing debate. What was better, her ending to the 2022 season or her run down the home stretch of 2023 where she finals Montreal, where she finals Beijing, beats Rabakina, Ostapenko, Kvitova, Bencic, Sabalenka during that stretch, also a semifinal in D.C., you know, three sets with Madison Keys, a loss I know made you sick. What'd you say? Arrest her, I believe, was the phrase. Put her, in, put her in jail. That's what it is. Put her in jail. That's what it always is. The DK go to. You just can't deny the power. I've seen the ball in person. It's just different than everyone else's. And to your point on her age, she's a 98, November 98. So she just turned 25 years old. Next year is her age 25 season. Feel like you have, again, the next half decade for her to continue to play. And I agree. I don't think we've seen her play her best yet. I think she has the most upward mobility because the weapons are real. She's gotten a lot better as a mover. Like, I'm just in. I'm in on the game moving forward. I'm, I have no reason to sell my stock. I have no, like, do, what's the biggest concern you have? I guess what would prevent her from making another leap? I mean, I guess is the losses that we've seen, whether it was to a Tomljanovich, the US Open last year, to Keys this year, were those a symptom of a lack of experience or is that a symptom of her getting tight in matches that she should win? Like that is the question. I think the more um, opportunities we have to see her at these big tournaments, I think the more that will become apparent. And I think that's, you know, I I think we've been waiting for the big breakout run for her basically since she beat Sam, uh, since she beat Sloane Stevens at Wimbledon in 2021 and she had Pliskova in the fourth round, you felt like, well, Pliskova's historically been awful on grass. Like that's a huge opportunity for, I think she was many people's sexy pick to make the semifinals of that tournament. Obviously that didn't end up working out for Samson Ovin. We've been waiting for her to slowly, you know, make it over the finish line. And, and again, is that a lack of experience or is that something mentally holding? It doesn't seem to be mental yet, but I think with more data points, we will see whether that is or is not. Fair enough. All right, let's move on to our next player here. And again, I got two more in this category of do you think they have a reasonable shot at winning a slam in the immediate future? I have to put Ostapenko in this list after what we've seen. I honestly think she's played her best two seasons these last two years. And she finishes, by the way, Samsonova finishes ninth in Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings. Ostapenko finishes 11th, and she's 13th overall in the rankings. She won 37 matches this year, second highest total of her career, trailing just her 2017 season. uh, Third best win percentage of her career, but uh, career best hold percentage this season. She was minimizing double faults. She was maximizing her first serve win percentage. In fact, it's the best since her 2015 season when she was playing her first matches on tour as an 18-year-old. 
I mean, again, she is also the oldest 26-year-old we probably have in the world. Still just 26. She was 37 and 22 overall in this year. And there were just pockets, Birmingham, on the grass courts. U.S. Open, Australian Open, and, you know, Dubai or, the uh, excuse me, just somewhere. Pick your event on the hard course. There was enough of a flash there. Rome semifinals as well. Was it a consistent 10 months? No. There were still shades of Ostapenko. But there were more consistent highs in every segment of the calendar. Like Again, she's only 26. What if there is just a year where she goes, you know what? This is the year I'm taking it seriously, where I'm just doing everything right for 11 months because that's what I want to do. She's the sort of person stubborn enough to be like, yeah, I want to do that this season. We're just we're changing things up this year. I don't know if I can sell all the stock yet. Like, I don't know. Who's more likely to win a major, her or Sam Snow in your mind, DK? Where are you with Ostapenko? I mean, I, that's a tough one because on one hand, we've seen you know some high highs from Sam Snow lately, and she's still so young that you feel like there's a lot of potential there yet. And at the same time, you know, Ostapenko's upside is so great, and she's clearly won a slam before. She's another one who I think, you know, did things out of order, won the slam first, and I think spent many years sort of trying to grapple with what that meant for her to be a Grand Slam champion, something that confirmed the high level of self-confidence that she has, that she is the best player in the world. And this is the proof. I won the Slam at 20 years, 19, 20 years old. And I think in the last 24 months, we've seen Ostapenko perhaps slightly edit her internal mindset from, I should never lose to anyone, which is still something she might say, to I am the toughest out in tennis, which kind of seems similar, but I think it's an interesting switch where it puts the onus on the opponent to beat her as much as I shouldn't lose to anyone. I think it it takes that much pressure off of her so that, so that when she comes into a match at the US Open against world number one, Iga Shriantak, she's like, I'm the one of the toughest opponents you got in tennis. If you're that great, you have to beat me. And I think that is why she's starting to win just a couple more matches a year than she was. And that's putting her in positions to be that much better than she was a couple of years ago. So I think that's, you know, are we going to see a, a, a meteoric rise from her? And I think it's been pretty steady in 2022, 2023. And maybe we'll just get that much more steadiness in 2024. Um, again, she's still very young and still has tremendous firepower. As long as she can keep the serve right, I would love for her to get just a little bit fitter. I, I think, you know, we're, we're talking about the great athleticism from your Sabalenkas and your Rebakitas. It's not enough just to be able to hit the ball really hard. I think you do need to be able to play slightly better defense. And that's always something that perhaps might plague an Ostapenko. But um it's been heartening to see her not give up. You know, I think that there's a part of her that still believes that she has a lot more to say on the tennis court, and she's slowly but surely making her point. Yeah, I think that's very, very well said. And, you know, again, should she get a little more steady? That's a top eight player in the world, and that's why she has to still be in tier number two because the upside is clearly there. Last person before we get to the rapid-fire category, Carolina Muhova. Obviously, a lot of her lack of consistency in the rankings has been injury-related. But we saw this year, whether it was French Open, whether it was Cincinnati, whether it was ever she was, whenever she was fully healthy, she qualified for the Tour Finals. She was one of the eight best players in the world this year. Again, the athleticism, the skill set, it's a little less skilled, but a little bit more powerful Marketa Von Drosova, uh, if you look at Karolina Muhova. Just, again, can do a lot of things to make you uncomfortable 
she belongs in tier two, does she not? With like, she's one of those players who you just feel like, when healthy, she will always threaten. Yeah, but I think that's sort of the problem. I think the WTA Finals is pretty much Mukova in a nutshell. Talented enough to qualify, too injured to play. You know, and I think that's perhaps now the difference in that trio of Krejcikova, Von Drusova, Mukova. We've seen just that slight bit more consistency from Krejcikova and Von Drusova, enough that they were able to win slams that Mukova is now yet to exhibit. And is she slightly more injury prone than a Von Drusova? She doesn't really make sense when you look at the two of them. You would think, you know, Von Drus- uh, rather Mukova is such a consummate athlete. And there's nothing about her game that is like, wow, she's going to really, you know, yank her shoulder the way she serves, or she's really going to like, you know, pop a knee the way that she runs. Everything about her seems inherently athletic. So it is baffling that she continues to be so injured as often as she gets. And maybe it's just the fact that she's a bit shorter in stature and just the constant pounding and the intensity with which she does play is contributing to these injuries. But I think the injuries are a problem. And I think it's, they held her back thus far. And I think they will continue to hold back her potential until she figures out how to minimize them. Maybe it's, is it a question of playing a a more streamlined schedule is, is it finding a better, you know, performance coach or fitness trainer, physiotherapist. It's something needs to change because I think we have, we did see this year that she is certainly capable, but is she physically capable of doing what it takes to be a top tier talent is I think remains to be seen. I think you framed it perfectly. The question's not about the talent, uh, about the tennis. The question is about all the things that go into being able to play your best tennis match in match out. That said, Rapid fire the rest of the way here, DK. You can answer three sentences or less, but try and go 30 seconds or less here at this next category, which I call back from injury. All the remaining tier two players I have. Naomi Osaka first. Now, obviously, it was an injury. She gave birth to her first child. She's coming back. It's been a long time since we've seen her peak level. Four major titles, though. Expectations for 2024. Does she ever re-enter tier one? The pause should be as long as the length of your answer as well. So I'm going to leave this pause in. Oh, gosh. I I want to see her play first because, you know, I think what was a weakness before she was at her best was perhaps she could have always been a slightly better athlete. And I think it's tough to come back from maternity leave and not have that, you know, sort of muscle memory. Yeah, not know. necessarily the power, but the fluidity. It was the yeah. in and out of corners. Yeah. And it's been a, and even before she went on maternity leave, it's been a while since she's been at her peak. And so I wouldn't expect her necessarily to hit the ground running, but she seems to be in as good a position as anybody to come back from maternity leave with a good team. You know, I think, you know, obviously she's got the coach again. And so I think there's, um, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, but it's just a very different field. It feels from the one that existed when Osaka won her fourth slam and second in a row. And it just felt so clear that she was about to dominate for the next decade same framework of questions sonia cannon oh i mean i kind of think we saw it's just weird with uh the cannon golf trajectory it felt like golf was declining cannon was rising and then it very quickly switched again and every the conversation became about golf and I don't, it feels like we haven't really spoken about cannon since she beat golf at wimbledon so it's it's again tough to say it's and i think she's still you know she's physically limited she's not the tallest she's not the strongest her game is very much, um, again, reminds me of Anna Kornikova, just sort of the the risks that she takes and the lack of shape sometimes on her shots can make her, you know, prone to unforced errors. I mean, she lost a three-setter to Kasakina and Kasakina was serving like 50 mile an hour serves. So hmm. not the best endorsement necessarily for her long-term prospects. But again, when she runs hot, she can be really, really tough to beat. 
as she continues to get more fit, more confident, more match tough, I just the skill set is so different than so many of the different players we see out there. I think there's a place for her, certainly in tier two. I agree, though. The landscape has changed, much like you said for Osaka. I don't know if I ever see Kennan getting back to tier number one, but credit to her. She got her slam title when the opportunity was there for her last, but certainly not least in this category. Paula Bedosa still tier one in your mind, DK? I mean, tier one in tennis power couples, perhaps. I mean, I think, you know, Bedosa feels closer to a Contavite than she does to a Rubakina or a Sabalenka. I guess that would be the equivalent number two um, right now where, you know, really gave 110%, you know, to turn around her career and and kickstart it and play through 2021, early 2022 as that number two player uh, in the world and, you know, got injured, lost confidence, lost confidence, got injured and kind of fell into that cycle. And it seems like she's trying to make a push for next year, talks about her passion for the game almost as often as she talks about her passion for Stefano Tsitsipas. And so I Mm -hmm. think that there is a chance, you know, I think there's nothing again, super hitchy about her game necessarily that makes you think, wow, she'll never be, you know, and and even in the clay court season, I mean, this is the same year, you know, Bedosa was laughing about how, you know, clear her game plan was for Co- to be Coco Golf, just hit it to her forehand. And so she was clear-headed enough to play that well on the clay that if she can be healthy and consistent enough, there's a, every every possibility she can make it back to the top 15. I don't I don't know where she I think it would require a lot of commitment to make it back to where she was, you know, in 2021 and early 2022. And she was really phenomenal. You know, that match against Azarenka at the Indian Wells final, one of the best in the last several years. And so it would be a shame if that was her peak, but, you know, better to have peaked once than never to have peaked at all, I suppose. Very fair. All right. To end rapid fire here in the truest sense, I just need a yes or no answer from you. Let's start with four players. All do I think they can break into the top 10 once again in their career or you? You also think that was poorly phrased question, but I'm losing my voice here at the end. Top 10, Benchich. No. Kudermatova. No. Vekic. To make top 10? Yeah, in her career. Can she do it? I would say yes, because I feel like she still has some good juju behind her with Pam Schreiber and everything. So, yes. Haddad Maya. Um, maybe. It's not one of the options. It's a yes or a no. Mm, I'm going to go with no. All right. Top 25, yes or no. Kalinina. Yes. Paulini. Uh, no. Bojkova. Yes. Just hired Conchita Martinez. I'm excited S- about that partnership. Sinyakova. Mm, no. Suribes Tormo. No. Bolter. Yes. Masarova. Mm. No. Podoroska. No. And the last one, a wild card, but I know your type, Niemeyer. Yes. I feel like we haven't heard enough about Niemeyer I know. in the last two years. Really, she belongs on this list. Had to be like discussed. 
Jung Chin Wen really like stole her life. (laughs) Had to come up again. I knew you would appreciate that name, but that's the next gen. And just a final statistic or framework for everyone. Again, this generation, tier one, Sabalenka, Rabakina, tier two, Vondrusova, Krechikova, Samsonova, Ostapenko, Mukhova, Osaka, Kenin. Tier and no Bardi mentioned. Tier three: Benchich, Kudermatova, Vekic, Kasakina, Hadadmaya, Bedosa. Here's how it compares to the generation prior. Generation before: Pagula, Jabur, Sakari, Keys, Kontave, Garcia, Svitolina, Mertens, Collins. You know, again, there are some other players. Maybe you want to throw in there as well, a Halep, etc. But this generation's really good. We got a lot of tier one talent. Now the question is how many of them ultimately reach their potential and play at that level over the course of the next five years. That's what we look forward to finding out, obviously, as tennis fans everywhere. That said, DK, any final thoughts on this next gen WTA crew? No, I'm excited. I'm disappointed we couldn't have expanded it because we could have talked about Potapova's wedding. That's a big bummer for me. Congratulations to Anastasia Ponopova. 2000s babies. That's its own podcast topic in and of itself. I'm happy to invite you back on if you want to have that discussion because it's certainly a fascinating one. But uh, before we go, tennis.com, you guys are busy. And by the way, we didn't mention Americans. They're a separate state of the union for the Americans. You can go hear that there. But talk to me about tennis.com, what you guys are talking about and what you're going to be up to over the next couple of weeks. I feel like I've pitched this I've, I've been shilling the same stuff every time i'm on this on this hmm. damn podcast i mean we're we're doing um 10 burning questions for 2024 we're doing top 10 matches of 2023 we're doing our top five quotes of the year we got a doozy of a number one coming up tomorrow i can only imagine you can guess who the number one quote of the year will be in addition we have fashion awards and baseline awards and top accounts to follow it's all fun recap look ahead stuff for what promises to be a very exciting season and sure sure enough probably um which reminds me, I should reach out to the, the good people of Netflix. Any forthcoming season two of Breakpoint coverage, to the extent that that's coming uh, soon, which feels like it should, because it dropped last January. It feels like we're, uh, we're 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 heading around the bend for more bingeable content. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to reading it all, and again, looking forward to have you back on this show to plug all of that tennis.com work again. Great having you, great having Ed, members of the tennis.com team, hoping to have more of them throughout the course of the month. But with that said, a thank you to David Kane, a thank you as always to our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who has what sort of a job to do, DK? He does a f- of an editing job. Day in, day in, day out, making everything possible. Shout out to Westoff. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for our fantastic co-host today, David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. I like it. And we will see you all next time. Thank you as always, DK. Dasvidanya. We'll